The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, friends, let's go ahead and start, if we might. Father, thank you for this, this uh, day you've given us. We acknowledge that every day is a gift of God and that it's a, a gift of your grace that we are even alive. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and of being able to gather here uh, in, in peace and safety to study these doctrines. Lord, I pray that you would uh, greatly enlarge our conception of you uh, by these studies. I pray that you would strengthen us, that we might understand things that are difficult to understand. I pray that we would worship you and love you and our affection would be drawn out toward you. And that as a result of this, we might serve you more effectively and, and worship you more passionately, O oh Lord, and encourage one another uh, with the doctrine of God. Um, because ultimately, Lord, Lord, you are the gospel. God is the gospel. And God is also the answer to every one of our problems and all of our griefs and sorrows. That we would be able to give God to each other, um, Lord, is the greatest gift. So I pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to learn now so that we can bless others later. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we continue our study of the attributes of God, and tonight we're going to talk about um, at least God's freedom and His, His omnipotence and maybe some others besides. Um, but let's just dig right in and talk about the freedom of God. And uh, it's something that, you know, ordinarily the, the doctrine of God's freedom is something that wouldn't necessarily uh, come to our minds. We think so much of our own freedom as Americans. We think about that we are f- uh, free, that uh, we have freedom in our uh, um, country. I think non-Christians tend to see freedom as, uh, you know, the ability to do whatever you want um, and especially to sin in whatever ways you want. Uh, that's that kind of freedom. Um, for Christians, you know, Michael Card said it uh, really powerfully. He said, freedom is the power to do what is right. Um, so that's the kind of freedom that God gives us. But God's freedom is of an entirely different order than any of this. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. What do we mean by, we, uh, by saying that God is free? Wayne Grudem uh, defines it this way. God's freedom is that attribute of God whereby he does whatever he pleases. Mm-hmm. Louis Burkhoff uh, puts it this way. The freedom of God is not pure indifference, but rational self-determination. Now, here's the way I see freedom, all right? God is not constrained by external forces. Nothing outside of himself compels him or forces him in a direction he does not want to go. God is impervious to external persuasion. Let's put it that that way. Whatever he does, he does because he is pleased to do it. So I think that's it's really almost you could think of it in terms of God's independence, that God just cannot be moved except by himself. And uh, that's really what we're looking at here. Because God willed it to be so, therefore, must be the final answer to lines of inquiry. No higher reason can be given. Many persons speak of human freedom or free will, etc. God is the only truly free being in the universe. All other beings are constrained by God's will in some way. God will not be ignored. Let's put it that way. Um, You know, we may think we can ignore God, but God imposes his will and he imposes himself on human history. But he will not be imposed upon. Let's put it that way. You can't make God do anything. And, you know, there's mysteries involved in this. How God allows himself to be overcome by us in prayer is a mystery. Isn't that something? You think about Jacob wrestling with the angel, right? And how the angel was overcome. What a mystery that is. 
and how God allows himself to be overcome by us in prayer. But don't misunderstand that. I think all that is is just that inducement, like uh, the parable of the unjust judge and all that, how God is somewhat compared to an unjust judge in a how much more kind of logic. If, if the unjust judge listens to the persistent widow, then how much more will our loving father listen to us? But prayer is a mystery and we should never imagine that we are somehow forcing God to do something that he either didn't think of or that he's unwilling to do. Uh, sometimes the name it and claim it people, I think, behave this way where, you know, God can actually be forced to do something he knows isn't in our best interest or he knows isn't really fitting into his plan. But because we're so powerful in faith and prayer, he just has to do it. He just becomes weak in the presence of our prayer. He becomes weak in the presence of our of our faith. And what can he do? And I've even heard some of these false teachers give examples of how Israel demanded a king. And God said through Samuel, basically, you don't want a king. This is what he's, he's going to do to you and all that. But they kind of prevailed against God. God gave them a king and look how badly it turned out. And so they actually kind of celebrate this kind of thing in a perverse sort of way, saying, look at this one example. And therefore, if you have enough faith, God's going to give it to you, whether it's good for you or not. Well, first of all, it's just wrong top to bottom. God never surrenders sovereignty and never surrenders his freedom. He will not be mastered by anything or anybody. He does as he pleases. That's the thing. And that's a good thing. We're going to talk later, not probably not tonight. I don't know how far we'll get in our studies, but the blessedness of God. God's happy in what he does and he's delighted in what he does. And so that's a good thing. God sees the path to ultimate pleasure for himself and for, uh, for, uh, for us in Christ. And so he chooses what's best for us. And it's remarkable to me how as we study it, we look at it, that God is willing to put us through immense pain to give us higher pleasure in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, think of it this way. I, I was thinking today about uh, John 11 and uh, the, the uh, death of Lazarus and how um, it's just really quite remarkable how... Uh, you know, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick and um, has a discourse with his, his disciples about that. And he says, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified in it. And um, he, he says, after, after two more days, he says, Lazarus is asleep. Let's go and wake him up. And, you know, one of his disciples says, well, if he's asleep, then he'll, asleep, then he'll get better. He's fine. He says, all right. <laughs> Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad. Now, that's a mystery to people who just don't understand how God works, that God actually can delight in bringing us through suffering and pain. And still, Jesus can weep over it later. I mean, the whole thing, just the bottom drops out after a while. And you're like, well, why, if you're weeping, then why, you know, what's going on here? It's, I think it's that he's compassionate to the pain that it's going to cause us, that he's going to have death be the final enemy. You see what I'm saying? It's going to cause incredible pain to people he loves, but it must be so for our greater joy and his glory in the end that death would be the final enemy and he's not going to get rid of it until the very end. And so we all have to go through it and we have to suffer and we have to be with people who who don't get healed and we have to hold their hand through that and go through all this misery and suffering, but it's better in the end. And so we should not imagine that God's abandoned the principle of pleasure. He is doing what pleases him. It pleases him to make death the final enemy. And with what joy will he throw it in the lake of fire? Let me tell you something. Revelation 20 says, then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. Someday death will be dead. And uh, the death, the, the, the mortal wound has already been, been administered, praise God, by the resurrection of Jesus. So that's a beautiful thing. But God is never mastered by anything in the universe, by any created being. And that's what it would be. It'd be by some created being. 
because that's all there is in the universe. There's the uncreated being, God, and then there's all these created beings, right? God won't ever be mastered by any created being. He does what pleases him. He is free. That's what we're talking about. Well, what scriptural support do we find for this? Well, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. The implication there is he does only what pleases him. All right. In other words, the things he does are what pleases him. And uh, Romans 11:35, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Now, if you meditate on that, really what's saying is God will never be compelled. He's, he doesn't owe anybody anything and he never will. Do you see? That's the point. He's never compelled in this matter. I mean, you go to, you go to, uh, uh, you know, to, to a supermarket and uh, there's a compulsion in the exchange. The, the economic exchange, the good given, the money given, that kind of thing, it becomes yours, they get the money. That's how it works. Or, or, or a worker works for you and you owe him his wages. God will never owe anybody um, you know, anything. And so who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Now, people have given to God. The Bible's full of people who have given to God, but never in such a way that God owes it to them to repay. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All you're doing is giving to God those things that are his. So God is never in a position of a debtor, ever. God's freedom then also consists in his being free from accountability to created beings. What do I mean by that? He doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't owe us anything. And so in Job 9.12, it says, if he snatches away, who can stop him? And who can say to him, what are you doing? That's what Job says. Now, I'm not sure he was happy when he said these words. I'm talking about Job now. But Job had a lot of stuff snatched away from him, right? A lot of things, more than any of us can even imagine. I mean, no one has, that I've ever heard of has ever suffered as much as that man. I mean, think of losing 10 children in one day. I've never heard of such a thing. Have you? I mean, I've never heard of that in all of history. 10 children in one day, seven sons and three daughters. And they didn't come back at the end of the story. They're gone. Um, but look what he says here. Nobody can say to God, what are you doing? What does that mean? No one can say to God, what are you doing? Well, he does trust him, but it's, you know, I think it's more than that. that right we don't have the right. Yeah. We don't have the right to come and say, now, God, you know, what, do we actually do that, though, kind of like in real life? Ever say to God, what are you doing? <laughs> we actually do. And I, I, I think the point of the book of Job is to heal us out of that. Job got healed out of that, didn't he? I mean, after all of the suffering and all of the philosophy and the theology and all of that sort of stuff, when God approaches Job in a whirlwind and basically says, who are you and where were you and all that, he, isn't he healed at the end? He's in a better place. He repents in, in sackcloth and ashes and he will never again say anything like, what are you doing to God? But he did do some of that. All right, uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, all the peoples of the earth, Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's no, no one has any right to, to come to God and say, what have you done? Or again, in Romans 9.20, concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Okay, God is free from accountability to us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. We proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. I always thought that was interesting. Spurgeon is such a master with language. So, you know, imagine God consulting with us in the matter. You know, I'm about to dispose of something in my creation. What do you think? Now, I know, of course, in Genesis 18, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he chose to reveal it to Abraham. But again, in, the, in line of the doctrine I'm teaching here, he didn't have to. He just chose to. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Could he have hidden from Abraham what he was about to do? 
Did he have the right to hide from Abraham what he was about to do? This was grace on his part to reveal to Abraham his mind, to open his mind. And frankly, that's the, of the essence, I think, of the closeness we have with God through Jesus Christ. He actually opens his mind to us. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Ephesians, he makes known to us what he's doing in the world. We Christians know what God is doing in the world in ways that non-Christians just can't. We know what God's up to. We see the purpose of history. We see the reason why we're here. We get it. We don't get it all. And I do think that there's some Christians who God shows more to and they understand more. You know, but at the same time, I'm just saying that God didn't have to do it. He just chose of his own free will, if we use that language, to reveal himself to Abraham. Also, God's freedom means he can never be coerced or forced <clears throat> to do anything contrary to his will, as we've said. Okay, let's move on. Omnipotence. By the way, we did will last time. And this is freedom and omnipotence. These, these three are just so closely related that we're, you, know, you end up using some of the same verses to support them. But here I really want to focus on power. Okay, um, We can talk about sovereignty and we will, but I want to just talk about what God can do. I mean, just what he can do when we look at the doctrine of omnipotence. Wayne Grudem says in, the, in uh, God's omnipotence that God is able to do all his holy will. That's actually a catechism answer in the children's catechism we use when we're growing. God, is, God can do all his holy will. All right. Well, that's that's important that we we define it that way. There are many things God cannot do. The Bible clearly reveals that God cannot do. He cannot deny himself, it says in in 2 Timothy. So he will be what he will be, and he can't be anything other than what he is. So that's something he can't do. He can't change his essential nature. He can't become untrinity, for example. That's impossible. Um so he he can't do that. He can't lie. And if you think about that, it really is an easy thing to lie. How do we know it's an easy thing to lie? To say something that's not true. How, can, how do you know that that's easy to do? There you go. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, dear friend. Uh, anybody else? You can say, well, I don't know. How, how would we know that it's easy to lie? I, you know, just uh, struggle with that one. I've heard that it's been done. <laughs> Scripture says all men are liars, as we're kind of proving this evening. At any rate, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's you, it's you, it really is. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, okay, but at any rate, um, there are many things the Bible says. So we, 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 we say this, God cannot lie because it's contrary to his nature. It's just impossible for him to lie. He cannot repent. He doesn't change his mind about anything he's done. Despite verses that seem to teach that, we know that in general God never changes his mind because it would imply that God got some new information or... You know, he changes essential nature. There are many things that God cannot do. What, what the definition positively gives us here is that God is able to do anything he wills to do. All his holy will. He never lacks power. That is very different from us. We would will things we cannot bring about. And we are just so different from God in this regard. We definitely lack power. Okay. Louis Burkhoff gives us this. Power in God may be called the effective energy of his nature. The ability to execute his will. It is that perfection of his being in which he is the absolute or highest causality. Stephen Charnock, who wrote a book on the existence and attributes of God, said this, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all of God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels, 
if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. Uh, A.W. Pink said this, We cannot have a right conception of God unless we think of him as all-powerful as well as all-wise. He who cannot do what he will and perform all his good pleasure cannot be God. As God hath a will to resolve what he deems good, so he has power to execute his will. All right, just let me pause here. I, I don't think we can possibly conceive of how much power God has. Every human being, even the most pious Christian, underestimates the power of God. Ephesians 3 says that God is able to do immeasurably more. NIV, I like the NIV, gives us this. Able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. I like the word imagine, even though it does stretch the Greek a bit, um, but I still like it, okay? Um, it, you know, most translations just give us simply able to do more than all you can ask or think. But imagine goes kind of beyond just think. Think is like what might kind of naturally pop in your mind. Imagine more has to do with, like, I'm going to work at it and think of what God could pull off. All right, when you've got to that, that level of what you really think God's power is able to do, he's able to do immeasurably more than that. That's really what the verse is teaching. So therefore, I like the word imagine there. Um, and so God can do immeasurably more than anything you can imagine he can do. So that means heaven's just going to be immeasurably better than anything you can imagine because uh, God, God's power will bring it about. So it's just an incredible thing. We underestimate what God can do. And that is such a comfort to us even in the midst of our suffering, isn't it? When we think about loved ones that are sick, you think about people in hospitals and all that, and then you come into this doctrine of omnipotence, how does that comfort us? How does that, Flynn, how would that comfort you to just meditate on omnipotence concerning a dying loved one? Right. I mean, A.W. Pink really does link them together. They really must go together because it's only comforting to know if God is good. But he is good, right? And, and I'll tell you, when you look at the 20th century and how you know, people have suffered with evil in the world, you know, the Holocaust, you look at some Jewish theologians that come along and you know, when bad things happen to good people and they basically come up with this simple thing and that is that God just can't do it. He just cannot pull off his good purposes. God is good. He's loving. He's just not all-powerful. That's the answer of that book, is that God couldn't stop the Holocaust. Couldn't stop it. Isn't, do you realize how horrible that is? That Hitler and the Nazis were stronger than God? I mean, think about that. But to them, it must be so because they can't conceive of a God that would do the Holocaust. And so therefore, they must say that Hitler and the Nazis are stronger than God. I, to me, that's worse than the Nazis. You, do you not see it? I mean, that's just, that's a horrible universe that, you know, and just because I don't want to live in it doesn't mean it isn't so, but it's also not what the Bible teaches, thank God. It, you know, that is a universe I would not want to live in, but thankfully it's not the universe we do live in. Now, I don't say that it answers all questions. I'm not saying that it can always satisfy us. I think it's really profound that Job gets almost none of his questions answered. He just gets God at the end and God's omnipotence is enough for him. 
But the bottom line here is that we greatly underestimate what God can do. And if you couple it with God's goodness, then at that point you can say, you know, God could have healed this loved one five days ago and that they would, they would get up from their deathbed and win the, the New York City Marathon. I mean, the God can do anything. And if it hasn't happened yet, there must be some good purpose for it. And that is very comforting to me. It's just very comforting to pray to an omnipotent God and to say, Lord, we know that... And, and again, it's not a matter of our prayers either. Like, you know, God's waiting for 100 prayers and you've only prayed 87 of them. And if you can pray those last 13, it's like your faith ran out and you don't get it. It just doesn't work that way. God is better than that. He's good. The thing is, it doesn't take much. What did Elijah ask God to do? You know, to send down fire from heaven. My, th- my thinking was a pretty simple prayer. Look at what Jesus prayed in front of Lazarus' tomb. Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I pray for the benefit of those standing here that they may believe that you sent me. There's his prayer. Lazarus, come forth. This has got nothing to do with the complexity or the length or the frequency of the prayer. It just has to do with God's will. He can do anything. And it's just good to know that, isn't it? So when you're praying over a loved one or whatever, it's not got to do with how long you pray or the complexity or even how much faith you can muster or any of that. It just has to do with God's will and his purposes and his omnipotence. And I find that immeasurably comforting, immeasurably comforting. My desire tonight is to get you ready for trials. I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready when that time comes so that you don't question God, don't question his goodness or his power. Let's hold both of those up there, even if you don't understand the plan or I don't. So omnipotence. How God relates to the power of created beings. C.H. Spurgeon said this, God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttressed throne, leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. Now, that's what omnipotence means. All power is God's. All of it. That includes Satan's power. We should understand that. You know, we do not live in a dualistic world in which God and Satan are battling it out. We're not even in a world in which God is just very much great, more powerful than Satan and, and beats him again and again, but Satan's got his own independent evil power. No, Satan's power is God's and he'll take it back when he chooses. That's really how it works. God can pull the plug on Satan anytime. Now, again, that runs you into difficulties. You're like, well, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he stop Satan? If he owns Satan's power and gave it to him, and just in some mysterious way upholds his right to use that power for such malicious purposes, why doesn't he stop him? Well, the answer is for the praise of his glorious grace that Satan is being used right now and that God can stop him anytime. That's what you get with omnipotence. Not just that God has more power than any other being in the universe. It's that all power is God's. All of it. And that's the thing that we, you know, we have to keep in mind. Key point then, all power originates with God and is actually his. And I I just said this. I wrote this and now I just said it. So we'll skip it. There's the printed version. You just got the kind of free-flowing version. Stephen Charnock, power is also used as a name of God. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, Mark 14, 62. That is at the right hand of God. God and power are so inseparable that they are reciprocated. As his essence is immense, not to be confined in place, as it is eternal, not to be measured in time, so it is almighty, not to be limited in regard of action. I like that, you know, power as the name of God. He sits at the right hand of the, of the power on high, that kind of thing. You know, I, I think that it's just so, so incredible for us to meditate on the power of God. God doesn't ever grow weary. 
Keep that in mind. There's, there's never any diminished. When God exerts his power, he doesn't have a little less and then has to build up his strength again. Um, he has just immense energy. The sun is a picture of it, but it's not a perfect picture because you have to have the sense that the sun is in some way diminishing moment by moment. The sun isn't eternal or infinite. The sun isn't God. But it, you know, you just get the feeling the sun could go on a long time doing that. You know, do you get that sense? Uh, it, it's not struggling, flickering. You know, like it needs some help. What could we do for the sun anyway? But I mean, if you know, the sun's burning, raging like an inferno, and it's a picture of God's power in that way, uh, and uh, a marvelous thing. Now, God's power is also not subject to logic tricks for you who have debated with atheists on the college campus. All right. The issue here uh, concerns things that power can do. God cannot make a stone so heavy that even he can't lift it. Okay, ever heard that one? See, therefore there is no God because he, there isn't such a being that could make a stone so heavy that even he couldn't lift it. You know, that's ridiculous. That's just that's a verbal trick is all it is. It has nothing to do with power. Power can't do that anyway. Power has to do with what can actually be done in the universe. All right, God can't make two plus two equal five. That doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It doesn't have anything to do with that. You know, those are matters of definitions. That's not a limit, limitation of his power. Also, God can do far more than he actually does. Do you believe that? <laughs> I, you know, I've thought about this. God can do far more than he actually does. He, he's holding himself back. I mean, Jesus is definitely an example of that. Do you, ever, do you see Jesus holding himself back? <laughs> you know, Jesus willed his own death through all of it. You understand that. I mean, you could, could you picture Jesus? I mean, obviously not morally or in terms of his plan, but just in terms of power. Halfway through saying, that's it, no more. I mean, no more spitting or no more mockery. I mean, he could rise up and do that at any point. So therefore, since he didn't, that means he willed his own death moment by moment until it was done. He willed to die. He really, it is true of Jesus that no man takes my life from me, but I laid it down. And so he laid it down until it was laid down. And it took a while. And so he chose to die. No one could take his life from him. No one had that kind of power. And he had to make that point. It's very, very important. So God himself, I was thinking often, uh, you know, uh, uh, this one time, sorry, after a, a violent, violent storm heading toward hurricane level up in Massachusetts. I don't know that it was hurricane. We get more of them down here in North Carolina than there. But I think it was, it might have been a tropical storm, if not a hurricane. And it was terrible. And there was like a hundred-year-old oak at Gordon-Conwell Seminary that got blown over. Uh, I remember that really old tree that had survived a lot of storms, but it didn't survive that one. But then it was over, you know how it is. And, and then, you know, Christy and I went out that evening. We went out uh, to a mall or something like that and came back. I remember the air feeling very warm and moist. And I remember seeing this this faint little breeze barely like tickling the the leaves on a sapling that had somehow made it through. You know, maybe saplings do better than 100-year-old oaks or it just wasn't the sapling's time. But at any rate, it was there, uh, survived the storm. Um, and the leaves were just flicking. I just thought about the range of power in the wind. The wind did that, and now the wind's barely doing this. And it just reminded me of God's power. God has such a range available to him. And he just... You know, he just does what's necessary. You see what I'm saying? He does, he touches and, and he's, he's just so skillful in orchestrating human history um, to, uh, to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes all he wants to do is just barely lift the leaves a little bit and, and that's it. But God can do more than he, than he actually does. He's got full power. The thing that, that constrains the power of God is the wisdom of God and the plan of God. That's what it is. It's not that there's any lack of, of God's power, so... 
He does not do all that is possible to save a single person on earth. All right, well, the first statement I make, he restrains himself constantly, not giving to us what he could and what we deserve. He also does not do all that is possible to save every single person on earth, as is seen clearly from these statements from Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute, but what we're saying there is that God could do more to save people than he's doing. Do you understand that? I mean, what could God do to save people? What could he do? Huh? Whatever he wants. I mean, could he bring it about? Could he be a universalistic God? Could he save every, could he empty hell? Could he do that? He absolutely could. So even people that, that believe in human free will say that God in some way limits himself, that God could do things. He just doesn't want to make robots or whatever answers they give, but that God could do more. But the ultimate Bible verses that prove this is in uh, Matthew 11, 20 through 26 and following. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Beside. If the miracles that were performed to you had been performed in Sire and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And the key question there is, then why weren't they done? It didn't please him to do it. It didn't please him to do it. He chose not to do the miracles in Tyre and Sidon that apparently would have been unbelievably effective. I remember when I preached this and I went through it and I said... Could it be that he chose not to do the miracles in Tyre and Sidon because they wouldn't have been effective? Well, clearly he said, no, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. That's good repentance. That's really good. I mean, that, that, it would have been amazing. There would have been an incredible revival. He chose not to do it. I remember I continued to say, was it because it was too far to go? No, he was there. I mean, he walked through the place. You remember the Syrophoenician woman? That was in, that was in uh, Sidon. He was there. So it's not like he is like too far to go or it was outside the range of his ministry or whatever. He just chose not to do the miracles that would have brought about their repentance. And why not? Why didn't he do the miracles that would have brought about their repentance? Why not, Tom? Why didn't he do those miracles there in Tyre and Sidon that would have brought about their repentance? I don't know what else we can say. He just chose not to. It's not a lack of power. He does less than he could. Now, you might say, I don't get it. I don't. You may not get it. You may die not getting it, but it's still the fact. All right? He could have done more than he did. And so the bottom line here is that God, God's power and his goodness and his wisdom are just woven together all the time to create the world we have and the history we have. And we should celebrate him for that and trust him for that and just, just rest in his sovereignty and his wisdom and goodness and say, God, you are far more powerful than I can imagine. You're far wiser than I am and, and far, far better than I can possibly imagine as a being. I trust you. I'm just in your hands. Do with me as, uh, as you see fit. Okay? So, God is in a position of absolute authority. You've seen that. He sits enthroned, Isaiah 40, 22. Above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. That's God. He has his absolute rule is beyond all question. We just quoted that one, Job 9 12. I said there are many of the same verses. Mighty irresistible decrees, Isaiah 14, 27. The Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? He has power to do anything he chooses. Isaiah 40 again. He brings princes to naught. And reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner are they take root in the ground than he blows them, they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Now you think about that. What does that mean? 
talking about the starry host that he brings them out one by one. That really would be a meditation on his omniscience, his understanding. He has a tremendous mind, God does. So that means he knows each of the stars by name. There are a lot of stars. If you didn't know that, there are just lots of them. All right. And he's got a name for each one of them. We don't, I don't even know if we've numbered them all. We've numbered like star clusters and stuff. They're just too many stars to name. I mean, we would never be able to give them names. We could probably number them. But I mean, it's just the numbers would get too big. God's got names for each of the stars, but that's not even what I'm meditating on, except in passing. Um, but because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. What does that mean? What does that teach you about the power of God? Go ahead. In control of even the most minute detail. Okay. It's just, I don't think our minds will ever be able to grab hold of it. Absolutely. What's not missing in this verse? Not one star. Not a single star is missing. Would you notice if one were? <laughs> Would it bother you? Hey, look, it's nothing to do with me. I got a test coming up here. What do I care if some star is missing in some cluster somewhere on the other side of the galaxy? God cares, though. I mean, it's there because he wanted it there. And he's upholding its existence. And because of his power, it's still there the next day. That's what it's saying. God's keeping the stars burning, not just our little sun, but all of them. How much power is there in all those stars? You can't measure it. I mean, you can't measure it. It's just immeasurable. So I think it's good for us to meditate on this. You know, I I think about the number of times human beings have said to an angel or whatever, how can this be? And the answer has been, is anything too difficult for God? I mean, we are constantly like, how can this be? He's like, don't you know God? Don't you know what he can do? Yeah, go ahead. Don't you, I always just wondered how the atheist communists, when they were trying to navigate and go around the earth and so forth, and were dependent on the stars to be there that got mm-hmm. there by chance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it always amazes me that, that mm-hmm. are they going to stay until mm-hmm. I get back to earth? Or, you know, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's God, according to Isaiah 40, Verse 26, it's God that makes sure that they're all still there. It's God that does that. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That, by the way, I love the context of that. That's when uh, God told Jeremiah to buy a piece of land right before the Babylonians (laughs) invaded. (laughs) Do you remember that? Where I love this. um, Jerusalem's surrounded. I think they've already actually invaded, but Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet. And one of... One of Jeremiah's, I don't mean anything negative by this, but one of Jeremiah's Jewish cousins comes and wants to sell him a piece of land. You remember? It's a business opportunity. All right. Well, it's like it's worse than selling marshland in in Florida, you know, right near Miami. This is like, hey, um, would you like to buy my inheritance? You know, would you like to buy my chunk of the promised land? It's not looking like it's that valuable. It's at this point, and he goes... Jeremiah goes to God and God says, buy it and have it, have it, have the deed notified and put it in a canister and wait. And why? Because I'm not done with the promised land. I'm not done with the Jews. I'm not done with any of this. Yes, there's going to be a 70 year exile. It was Jeremiah that knew that. But God still has a purpose for the Jews and he still has a purpose for the promised land. And what does Jeremiah do but worship God and promise and, 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 and praise him saying, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. All right, we already quoted Ephesians 3.20, and then I already referred to this, but Gabriel said to Mary concerning the virgin birth, nothing is impossible with God. 
So God can create a human being with no human father. You may not know how he did that. You may, it may make no sense to you. Uh, virgin birth may be incomprehensible to you. But Gabriel said the answer is that God is powerful enough to make it happen. Jesus didn't need a human father. We also see God's power in creation. Uh, Psalm 33.6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So God created all things simply by speaking them into existence. And then again, uh, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God's power in preservation as well. God continues to exert power toward our planet. Uh, I've said this before, but I think it's, it's helpful to remember that God created a needy universe. He created a needy earth. He created needy creatures. He created them dependent on him. And it, it's not just because of sin entering the world and the essence of sin being independence and rebellion and all that. That's part of it, but it's just because it must be so. God would not create a universe that was separate from him and didn't need him. He created a universe that depended on him. And so we'll depend on him in eternity future as well. It's not like once we're redeemed and there's no more sin in the world, we won't need God then. We'll need God always. Um, but God, God upholds everything. And here it just simply has to do with food. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. I really would like to read all of Psalm 104. It's just so beautiful. He talks about all these different kinds of like sea creatures, you know, out in the sea or, or just lions that go out at night and prowl around. And man, when the lions go, go back, you know, the man goes out to work at his, at his work during the day. And so you've got man and you've got birds and you've got beasts and you've got fish. These all look to God to give them their food at the proper time. So how many living beings does God feed every day? Well, they're countless, but every one of them. Whatever, whatever's alive, whatever eats, God fed them today. So that's why I've said before that the only reason that there's starvation on earth is human sin. It's always because of human sin, specifically. And I mean gen just generally as a... I'm saying there's enough food, guys, is what I'm saying. There's enough food. It's always because of a willful, intentional sin on the part of human beings that people starve to death. It's not because God doesn't provide. God, there's plenty, plenty to eat. Plenty to eat. So when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. And when you take away your breath, they die and return to the dust. And when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. The sovereign God upholding all life. And then Job 38, 8 through 11. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth for the, from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed limits for it and set uh, its doors and bars in place. When I said thus far or this far you may come and no farther, here's where your proud waves halt. This is talking about the limitations on the ocean. All right. The ocean has limits. Job 38, God says, I set the limits for the ocean. Okay. Have you ever been to the beach? I've thought about this before. The beach is an interesting place. My mother has a house uh, near Cape Cod and you go to, go to the Cape and there, there are these dunes there and they're protected by the state government. All right? You're not allowed to step off these wooden paths all right? because there's this little dune grass that's growing on that and if you step on it, it might die. All right? And the dunes, you know, what the, you know what the grass is for? It's to prevent erosion because... It's going to erode. It's going to disappear in some very expensive B 
beach property will go away. And they don't want that to happen. They don't want the beach to disappear. And friends, that is what's protecting us from the ocean. That's the powerful barrier between us and the ocean. I mean, you talk about these mighty waves and then as it gets close and then it just gets, that's it. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't ever kind of overflow and there are hurricanes and all that and beachfront towns get inundated and all that. But in general, the ocean is controlled by the, uh, by the sand dunes and by the beach grass. That's what's holding it back. Well, no. According to Job 38, what's holding the ocean back is the word of God. This far you may come and no farther. It's God that sets those limits. And so how do we apply that? Well, what do you think is protecting us right now from terrorist attacks? Do you think it's the TSA? Do you think it's the FBI, the CIA? Do you think it's uh, the you know, armed services as they, as they fight in Iraq and Afghanistan? Look, God may be using all those, but the reason that things happen or don't happen is the will of God. That's why. That is where our safety is. It's in God and in God alone. Do you believe that? It's not got anything to do with our military prowess. There are psalms that speak obviously to this. We should not trust in those things. It's God that limits things by his power. Again, Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And here's the key for this study tonight. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Again, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, that God constantly wills what exists that it would continue to exist. Jonathan Edwards so belie- believed in this so strongly that he got a little eccentric at this point and believed in basically a constant creation by God. I don't think that he's heretical here. I think he's just saying that God constantly wills to create, to uphold what he originally created. In other words, it's by a constant will of God that we continue to have our being. It's by the, a constant will of God that the chair you sit on continues to exist. That's what I'm saying. And I think he's right. God continues to will this thing and uphold its existence. God also has all power in government. It says in Psalm 103:19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Uh, Ephesians 1, his power is like, that power, sorry, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. By the way, in Ephesians 1.21, it says far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that could be given. The words far above are an understatement. It's just we can't handle, there are no words really in the English language to, to explain the gap between God's power and any created being's power. It's an infinite gap. So yes, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Okay? And then God's power and judgment, Genesis 6:17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. This is uh, two aspects of God's power. It's his right to do it and his ability to bring it about. You think about the flood. What an awesome display of power the flood was. The floodgates of the heavens opened, the springs of the great deep burst forth, it says. People have talked about a violent flood, and so it was. It just reshaped the surface of the earth. But it wasn't just a, it wasn't a natural thing. It was something that God did. It was a judgment that God brought on the human race for our sins. And so God says very plainly here in Genesis 6:17, I am going to bring a flood on the earth, and I'm going to extinguish the life of everything that has the breath of life in its nostrils, except what was on the ark. And God has the power to do that. 
Okay, uh, Isaiah 66, 16. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men and many will be those slain by the Lord. John 5, 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has authority and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, this is a very important and interesting verse. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. The mystery between the Father and the Son is infinite. We'll never be able to understand it. But Jesus, in effect, asserts that his life comes because the Father grants it to him. There's not a reverse statement made concerning that, well, I also grant the Father that he would have life in himself. No, it's just that Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself, he has granted to me to live in the same way. So I just think that's an incredible statement. Um, And he has given to Jesus the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So what that means is that Jesus, and we're going through Matthew 23 on Sunday mornings now as Jesus goes, you know, the sevenfold woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I cannot read that chapter without thinking of John 5, 27, that it is the judge of all the earth that's speaking these words. The Father has given to Jesus the right to say woe to the scribes and Pharisees and to condemn them to hell. He has that right. He has that power, the power of judgment. And no one will be able to resist him. By the way, there is power in condemnation. It bothers me when people say, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People decide to go there themselves. Let me tell you something. There's not a single person that would ever decide to go to hell. I'd like to go to hell. I mean, nobody decides to go to hell. Everybody has to be thrown there. I mean, they have to be thrown there by the angels. It's always the angels that throw them in. Why is that? Nobody wants to go there. It's a horrible, horrible place. Well, then why do they end up there? Because God's power wills it. And they can't say no. That's what it is. There's only one way to escape the power of God displayed in hell. And that's the power of God displayed at the cross. You have to flee to God to escape God. That's really what the cross is saying. The only escape from his wrath is to go to him, run to him. And so that's what the cross is about. Okay. And then Matthew 25, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. A.W. Pink's conclusion to this meditation on omnipotence, well may all tremble before such a God. Those are powerful words, aren't they? To treat with impudence one who can crush us more easily than we can a moth is a suicidal policy. To openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us in pieces or cast us into hell any moment he pleases, is the very height of insanity. To put it on its lowest ground, it is but the part of wisdom to heed his command, kiss the son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Psalm 2.12. That's good advice, isn't it? <laughs> kiss the son while you have time. Believe in him and embrace him. Okay? Omnipotence. Oh, there's more. Well, I'll read it then. Well, may the enlightened soul adore such a God. The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being call for fervent worship. If men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? I like this because not only should we tremble in the first paragraph, but we should adore such a God. 
I mean, I think this we could say, if our praise and our worship is anemic, maybe we haven't been meditating on God's omnipotence like we should or on any of the other attributes, but why not this one? Meditate on the omnipotence of God and find what it does to your praise and worship. So we should adore such a God. And then, well, may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had to had a limit to his strength, well, might we despair. But seeing that is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from, no misery too deep for him to relieve. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, 1. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. All right. Any questions or comments about the doctrine of omnipotence? Yes, Margo. Yeah, it's communicable. God has all power. We have some power. So there is a relationship or connection between God's power. You know, to some degree, you say no, none of God's attributes are really communicable because he is so different than us in every regard. But I still think it's helpful that there is a reflection in us, just like there is of mercy and justice and goodness and all that, also of power. We have the ability to do things. We have the ability to make, make a difference. But we just know that our power comes from God. So that's a good question, actually. Very good. Other questions or thoughts about omnipotence? Tom. In Horton's book, uh, Gospel Driven Life, he said most people do not think about God as dangerous. He said that's a dangerous oversight. Mm-hmm. You send your body and soul to hell, I'd mm-hmm. say that's dangerous. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we teach these things and I, I can't help but, you know, but tremble in, in my heart and to think, you know, do I really know this God, do I know him like I should? makes me want to get to know him better and to seek him in prayer more. But yeah, the danger of God. Other thoughts on this? Why is this a consoling and a comforting doctrine? Why bother praying if he, if he isn't omnipotent? Okay, so it definitely helps our prayer life. Okay. Anyone else? Life isn't random. It's not just coming at us by chance, you know. And uh, no, it's coming, coming at us, um, you know, because of the will of God and His love for us, you know. Also, it's really it's really that we're vastly outmatched by a lot mm-hmm. of forces that oppose us. Mm-hmm. So Satan is far more powerful than mm-hmm. we are in this world, mm-hmm. our, our own flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but once if there isn't if there isn't an omnipotent God who's on our side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you, this, this one concept is really quite a powerful concept to bring with you to various texts of the Bible and, and cause you to, to wonder at them. Like think about, for example, in Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, I think it's chapter 10, where it talks about how this angel wanted to come to Daniel, but he couldn't get past the prince of Persia. Remember that? But the archangel Michael came and enabled him to get past the prince of Persia. Where was the omnipotence of God there? Do you wonder about that? Was God like just having a weak day that day? 
No, God's omnipotent all the time. So he apparently allows the angels and the demons to battle it out on more or less equal terms. So you need two angels to kind of group together to get a job done. That's really kind of an amazing thought when you think about it, that, that basically for 21 days, the angels struggled to get the message to Daniel. And finally, almost like in, in football or in basketball where a pick was set, you know, he's able to get past the prince of Persia and get the message down to Daniel. And it's like God could move his little finger and move the prince of Persia, whoever he is, out of the way. But God chose to let the angels kind of just battle it out. And then I, I go from that concept over to you believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and they tremble. Well, that brings me into thinking about demonic faith. What is demonic faith? It means that they don't really see God like we think, because they're spiritual beings, they just see him right there all that. No, they don't. They have to kind of believe that he exists because they see evidence of his power. God is just so infinitely removed even from the spiritual beings at that point. If God reveals himself up in his throne on us because he's choosing to do it to the angels that cover their faces and all that sort of stuff. And if Satan roaming around the earth is invited into the presence of God, it's because God permits him there. There's just this infinite gap. Do you see the arrogance of Satan thinking he get close to God? and get close to you and come up, I'm going to be like the Most High. No, you won't. There's just an infinite gap between God and all other created beings. So like I said, this is a very powerful concept, the omnipotence of God, all power is God's, and bring it to various places and your eyes get opened. It's really quite remarkable. All right, let's do one more. We have seven minutes. Uh, Let's do the doctrine of perfection. Definition, Wayne Grudem said, God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. So he possesses everything. He's got a full set of all the good qualities. <laughs> I guess that's what Wayne Grudem says. Or Herman Bovink said this, God's perfection is that attribute which described God, describes God as the sum total of all excellencies, as the one than whom no one, uh, no greater, higher, and better can exist, either in thought or in reality. It means that he is exalted above all shortcomings and limitations. So he is the best possible being he can be. He's the best possible being. We wouldn't want to say the best possible being we can conceive of because what's that? Is there any prize in that? (laughs) How limited is our understanding, etc.? He is that, but he's infinitely more than that. He's better than you can possibly imagine. Okay? Uh, Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's an incredible verse, isn't it? Especially when you consider what I think is true, that all of Christ's commands to us are also his promises to us. Well, at least in that context, it means love your enemies. (laughs) But bigger, it just means seek to be like God and God is perfect. You know, the word as means in the same way that God is perfect, you ought to seek to be perfect too. And, you know, you look at that and and you can see Jesus almost anticipating our argument saying, just kind of checking out like a circuit breaker. It's like, love our enemies. You know, I can't do that. And, and in effect, Jesus is saying, be perfect. So, well, that's like, that's being perfect. No, that's, yeah, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, what I meant when I said all of God's commands are actually promises, he doesn't just throw off commands. He, he speaks them because they're of his essence and his nature. And when he tells them to us, he wants us to be that. We have proven unable to do it. So then he does it for us in Christ. And then in sanctification, he gives us the standard and then urges us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we find we really can't. And then in glorification, he just does it. 
And so when he commands us to be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect, we strive with that standing over us at every moment. Isn't that your aim? I mean, don't you get up every day saying, I want to be perfect today. I really do. I don't, I don't want to shoot for 80% obedience today. I really just want to do everything God wants me to do. That is the standard, but we don't come up to it. And then in glorification, God just does it for us. It's a beautiful thing. But perfect means, you know, just complete in every way. Um, complete, lacking nothing, having reached or accomplished its appointed end or mature, just everything as it should be. Uh, Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Uh, how perfect, perfection is a communicable attribute. Um, Herman Bovink said this, that creature is perfect in a creaturely finite manner, which fully answers to its norm. That is it ex- exactly as it was created to be in all ways. So also God is perfect because the idea of God is in full accord with his being. In other words, God has an idea of what a perfect God would be and it just so happens to be what he is. All right, That's the best I can do with Herman Bovink right here. Um, like I said a moment ago, your idea of the perfect God, God as I conceive of him, well, does that really matter? I mean, let's be honest. We have such limited perceptions and we wouldn't do it God's way in so many cases that we really are no measure of it. Well, then who would be the most qualified to think of what the perfect God should be? I would think God. So God has an idea of what God should be. As it turns out, it's actually what he is. So his idea of what he should be equals what he actually is. He is perfect. And by the way, if you believe in the doctrine of inerrancy and the inspiration, it is God that told us that he's perfect. (laughs) He is communicating, I'm perfect. I am the perfect being. I can't be better. I cannot be better than I am. And my ways cannot be better. As for God, his way is perfect. All right? Yes, um, God gives us this call. uh, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We've talked about that. We are perfect positionally in Christ, Hebrews 10, 14, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's an interesting verse. I've worked on it for a long time, actually. Um, Other translations are different, but basically I look on this as justification and sanctification in one verse. Others don't see it quite that way, but I like it. We'll just keep it in the NIV. NIV does a good job here. So by one sacrifice, he has declared you perfect as you are being made holy. So um, at any rate, we are being conformed to the perfect God. We are striving for perfection. And that's maturity daily, uh, as we have in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for perfection. Uh, Ephesians 4, 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, again, perfect, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 9. We are glad whenever we're weak, but you're strong. Our prayers for your perfection. Okay. And uh, James 1, 4. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So that's how this is a communicable attribute. We will someday be perfect. Praise God. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing to think someday I will be everything that I can be as a human being. I will not be God, but I'll be everything that God intended in human beings created in his image. I'll be completely conformed to Christ. I'll be perfect. Oh, by the way, on James 1.4, the key concept in this part of James is that we all lack something in our Christian character and walk. Trials come to bring us to perfection, namely that state wherein we lack nothing of all the attributes that God has communicated to us and that we possess them in all in full measure according to the standard of humanness set by Christ. Thus, sanctification could be seen as an acquisition of attributes not earlier possessed. 
and an expansion of those attributes until they match the standard of Christ. As merciful as he was, as loving and righteously angry against evil, a patient, long-suffering, whatever attributes you may see in Christ. And it's trials that bring that about in you. Only trials. That seems to be what James 1.4 is saying. The only way you really make progress in your sanctification is by hard times and trials. The reason it's not only hard times and trials is that would not be maximally effective in bringing about God's purposes. That in this world, we're going to have trouble, but we don't only have trouble. We also have some enjoyments and some blessings and some other things. But God's ultimate purpose for us as Christians in this world is our sanctification. And according to James, the only thing that really brings that about are trials and difficulties and temptations and testings and all that. And so we must have those things, but God is wise in mixing them together with some oases, some refuge, some times of refreshment and sleep every night. And that's a good thing. So it's not just relentless, but then it's back at it again the next day. And so God is bringing, using these trials to bring uh, us about, uh, about uh, bring us to perfection. Second Peter 1, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness, through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, that means be like God, and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort, effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, Self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So godliness or participation in the divine nature is being like God in His communicable attributes. That God is working perfection in us. Now, perfection will not be perfectly achieved, so to speak, uh, achieved in until we get to heaven. Until we reach... uh, uh, glorification. Total perfection comes in heaven. In uh, Hebrews 12:23, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. What an incredible statement that is. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any other verse that actually declares human beings perfect as this one, but the spirits of righteous men made perfect. This verse also teaches me that glorification comes in two stages. Spiritual perfection first, physical perfection second at the resurrection of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study tonight. We praise you for it. We thank you for the things we learned about you. And Lord, I ask that as we go on from here that we would meditate much on the doctrines we've seen uh, in Scripture tonight and uh, that we would put them into practice and use them to counsel and encourage one another and to protect us from sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.